listening to Not Another Green Podcast, the sustainability podcast where we interview amazing guests directly after they've spoken at the UN and feel the pressure big time. Hello and welcome to a very exciting episode of Not Another Green Podcast. And as Inigo always says, first things first, let's introduce who you have today. And you have the man himself, first things first, Inigo. Yeah. Second for things second. Second uh, things second. Nacho is always here. Nacho is here. And you also have me, Steph. So today we're going to build on the last episode where we introduced green growth and we talked a bit about degrowth. And today we're going to go beyond growth. Whoa. Beyond the concept of growth. And we have a very, very special guest. But before we get into that, we want to give you some introductory information, just to frame the whole episode. So we're going to be talking a lot today about GDP. So let's firstly talk about what is GDP and what are some of the problems. Uh, yeah, so basically GDP is gross domestic product and it measures whatever is produced in a country over a period of time, uh, which is all the services and goods. However, it does not include moral or ethical consideration. It does not account on paid work, voluntary or caring and maintenance, like for example, household work. Furthermore, GDP is indifferent to inequality and doesn't care about natural stocks and planetary boundaries. So that's okay. the problems. Wow, yeah, it big is problems there. flawed. And also today in the episode, we are going to be talking about what are some of the key considerations when we think about transitioning away from GDP. So, for example, when we're talking about well-being, are there any political interpretations? Are there any definitional differences? Because if there's one thing that GDP does is it gives this united vision, this one indicator. So we're going to be talking more about some of the complexities that are introduced when we replace GDP. Lovely. Yeah, let's go. So let's go. Let's go straight away and yep. find out who the special guest is. Today, we are delighted to have a very special guest with us in the podcast studio. Dr. Hookstra is an environmental economist who has gained international recognition for his groundbreaking work on sustainable economic development. His ideas on the social and environmental costs of economic growth have been influential in both academic and policy-making circles. And his book, Replacing GDP by 2030, has received critical acclaim. He has worked with numerous organisations, including the OECD, the World Bank and the United Nations, where he addressed the General Assembly in April of this year. His message is clear. People should not work for the economic system. The economic system should work for the people. And if all of that wasn't impressive enough, he is currently a visiting researcher at the Environmental Science Department at Leiden University. And now, most excitingly of all, he is a guest on Not Another Green podcast. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Rutger Hoekstra. <laughs> hey, welcome. What an intro. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite good. Thank you, Steph. Uh, thanks. Um, but yeah, so this is all super exciting. So I think the best way to start uh, this... Oh, just w one thing. Uh, I have been promoted to not a visiting uh, a researcher, but, oh, so, uh, but I don't want you to do it e all over again. But uh, <laughs> I am not actually a staff member. So, uh, but does nice. this mean you're committed to Leiden University? I'm then? committed. Oh, nice. <laughs> That's another clap. <laughs> what a win for Leiden University. Yeah, yeah. We've done the masters yeah. too early. Yeah. 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 From, from the 1st of January, I, I got... Uh, I, I decided 
decided to shift. So basically, I was consultant with the World Bank and UN and stuff. But then there was this uh, great uh, opportunity to get this project funded. And so then I just thought, well, I need to go back into yeah. academia. What we would like to know is how did you get into this world? How did you become interested in this whole beyond GDP section of uh, academia? Yeah, I think we're going to get also into this topic that I think quite often your motivations are very uh, innate, right? And, and I think actually from a really early age, I was interested in environmental problems. I, I grew up in Africa, so you have a lot of nature and, and poaching, but... To be quite frank, I was also really interested in, in acid rain in Europe, in Germany, and I was interested in the ozone layer. And, and so I think we all have some kind of innate characteristics where something interests you. And my father actually said to me, uh, well, if you want to solve environmental problems, you need to know what the economy is, right? It, it's, it's almost impossible really to solve environmental uh, problems without that knowledge. So. There was a new study in Wageningen called uh, Environmental Economics, and I was in the second year actually of that being given. And uh, I think from there, my interest grew really. Um, and as I started working at the statistical office after my PhD, um, then I noticed I was also interested in social aspects, you know, social capital, the, the, the bonds and the networks that we have in society, but also inequalities. Uh, so it kind of organically grew into a beyond GDP uh, profile, I think. And I've never regretted really going, going into that topic. So, it's been a few years since replacing GDP by 2030 came out. I think it was 2019. So obviously things have changed for you since then. In what ways has your thinking evolved since then, shall we say? Yes, so uh, replacing GDP by 2030 was uh, really a culmination of my work for the first 10 years or so in, in Beyond GDP. And it was actually, I think the first sentence is, uh, this book is written out of frustration. <laughs> yes, I had, is. I had, uh, I had dwelled on this topic for so long. Um, and in the beginning, I was really excited about the topic and it sounded exciting and, and stuff. But then I started to get very frustrated by the, just the sheer uh, quantity of alternative. So for 50 years, people have been suggesting new indicators that should replace GDP. And we never seem to evaluate, well, how has the, that been working for us? Um, and so as the number of suggestions increased, I actually grew increasingly frustrated. And I was articulating my frustration and saying, listen, as a group, as a community, we need to work together uh, because GDP is this one monolith uh, that's harmonized across the world. It's captured in institutions, in narratives. Uh, and what are we doing uh, in the Beyond GDP community is just every week suggesting a new index with new terminology. So that was the frustration I had. Um, and I must say, I've become far more optimistic. I do think we're at the uh, cusp of, of a change. Um, I think the uh, as, as you said, uh, I addressed the UN General Assembly. There's a lot of initiatives uh, there going on. Even the system of national accounts, where we actually describe how to measure GDP, is actually going to be including chapters on well-being and sustainability in them. I'm far more optimistic, actually, compared to, uh, 
compared to that time. way we as society relate to the word growth and how growth you can, can be of so many different things and yet we still have this kind of economic lens when we look at the word growth that it's almost impossible to think of growth without thinking of economic growth and kind of how that plays into this whole beyond GDP camp even the name of it includes GDP in it so yeah that's that's fascinating isn't it right you can just use the word growth and actually Everybody just assumes economic was the adjective that you used before it. And, and uh, yeah, th that's a really fascinating part also of some research that I'm doing actually after the book uh, I came out. I, I, I've been studying the archives of the New York Times to see how that happened. And interestingly, the term economic growth didn't actually exist up to the 1950s and 60s. So it would be actually a term that if you used it in the 1930s or 40s, people would not actually have an association with that word. And uh, interestingly, even the word economic or economy uh, occurred around three in 3% of articles in the 1930s. So during the Great Depression, the biggest economic catastrophe of the previous century, the term economy appeared in 3% of articles in the New York Times. And then if we fast forward one century, then actually during the COVID pandemic, around a sixth of articles in the New York Times has the word economy in them. And so what I think also is happening is that we're constantly being bombarded with the word economy in our news, in our television, on internet. We're constantly being bombarded with economy, economy, economy. And to a certain extent, it's subliminal messaging of what is important, right? And then, you know, scientists like myself say, well, we shouldn't actually be focusing on the economy. It just doesn't sound right to the to the average listener. It just doesn't sound right. It, there's something iffy about that uh, that theory that that man is is professing. And, and I think that's the power, actually, of having this this index, which created even a term like economic growth, but also propelled the the noun economy and the adjective economic into our systems and sometimes what does frustrate me a little is that even when we're thinking of alternatives uh, to uh, th this system we always say we need an economic paradigm shift or we need donut economics or ecological economics or we need to go beyond gdp and my book is even called replacing gdp so we need to a kind of uh, acknowledge the paradigm before we even suggest an alternative. But I, I think that's also quite a, a bit of a problem in terms of messaging sometimes. Yeah, because even with green growth versus degrowth, which we did our last, well, we didn't, even, we just talked about green growth and degrowth, not yeah. versus in our last episode. It's just so tied to economics that you can't think about it in any other ways. Even though we're trying to talk about sustainability and technology, it still comes back to yeah economics and capitalism and yeah and and where's the agency in the word right so it's either degrowth or green growth so you're for the one but where's the agency in the word it's basically just in the growth uh, so in a sense it's it's actually uh, the same as the narrative of the economy is important 
um, because uh, uh, whether you're green growth or degrowth, in both cases, you agree that that's where the key got is to, to change. Got to keep yeah. growing. But, but <laughs> why are we not looking for uh, a donut society or an ecological society rather than ecological economics or a steady state society? You know, in a sense, already we are framing the, the discussion by having a term like degrowth or green growth. And that's not... Um, so I, I really value quite a lot of the ideas that come, for example, from degrowth. Uh, but I, I, it's from a purist perspective, we also need to ask ourselves whether we are not propelling a narrative by, by, um, uh, by using a term like that. One of the questions is like, if we are moving to this new paradigm of new indicators, like what could be some examples of indicators that you think that are relevant to start measuring now or put into policies? Yeah, so I think what what went wrong with GDP is that we started seeing as as the goal of society, right? So the economic system is obviously an important system in society, but growing it is not the goal of society. And, and so the real question when you're choosing indicators is to start thinking about what, what are the true uh, goals of society. And that's also our group and, and uh, the PhDs uh, that we have working in the project. They're looking also to, to synthesize 50 years of beyond GDP uh, indicators and see you know, what are the common threads really in these uh, indicators. And, and that's also where the, the WISE acronym comes from. Basically, we found three dimensions which are very prevalent. Um, so there's well-being, which is, uh, you know, how are people doing now? Uh, happiness, life satisfaction, quality of life for the generation now. Then there's inclusion. Is it uh, well-being for everybody? And that has a national perspective. You know, are there differences uh, within countries? But also it has a global perspective. What are the differences in well-being between global north and global south? So that's inclusion. And then the third dimension is future well-being. Um, is is uh, our, our children and grandchildren really also going to be, um, uh, you know, operating uh, or being able to... to um, to um, have a, a, a well-being life, really. So well-being, inclusion, sustainability, those uh, are really key in a lot of measurement systems. And uh, a PhD of mine has now looked at each of these indicators uh, out of the dozens of indicators uh, that are out there, uh, which ones track well-being, which ones track inclusion, and which ones track sustainability. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of prominent examples in each space, um, and, and that's really the research that she is doing. Yeah. I don't know whether you want to get into to details on some indicators or... or I mean, if, if you if you want, uh, that's like also fine. But I, I actually, um, I just ra a question raised, came to my mind, like, regarding... How, how do you feel like, um, because like we as, as people, like as in, uh, people in society also, we, we value our lives also in indicators, not as the economy in itself, but more between the persons. Like you see people that have more money, as more, su more success, successful, and, uh, and you, you always value these things. So do you think like the approach from the perspective of the person or of also valuing well-being uh, above other indicators can be connected to this 
Well, if you look at so well-being is is kind of an overall measure, uh, and and so we have uh, ways of of finding indexes for that. So we have the Human Development Index. We have subjective well-being, where we actually ask people, you know, how satisfied are you with your life? Uh, there's a great indicator called the U Index by Kahneman, which actually covers uh, the time use and and you know what you enjoy in your life. So there's many ways of of analyzing you know well what is well-being but what is also interesting is and i think that's also your question is what is driving the well-being so for example income does have an influence on housing on your clothing on your ability to travel so it's not as if the economy is unimportant it does actually have an impact on your well-being but by the same token your health comes out as a really important factor for well-being and most importantly probably our social connections so the literature on well-being is very robust in terms of the importance of uh, of social connections either to family to friends to partners to your uh, family unit um, so there is a lot also that's beyond what you would see as income so to speak and and those are the determinants of well-being which are also different for everybody right it's not as if everybody's the same but if you look at a broad set of people in a society then there are a, a, a lot of common things that uh, uh, pop up for a lot of people super interesting point to, to talk about how political then do you think the definition of well-being is because if we're now shifting this objective to to well-being how subjective is it how would maybe a progressive think about well-being versus a, a conservative so yeah how do we all differ in our opinions of what this objective even means now yeah yeah that's also one of the things after my book that i i've become really fascinated by like like what is the difference in what what do would a conservative here and a progressive here when they hear this story right we have had this podcast now what is the conservative thinking what is the progressive thinking and and that brings me to the work of jonathan Haidt, which i think wrote he wrote one of the most uh, influential books on myself uh, um, uh, of the last 10 years, one of the best books I've read, is called The Righteous Mind. And it's about the moral foundations that actually we all have. So uh, in a way, we are trained to think that we get to our opinions in terms of rational thoughts. We think through all the um, uh, all the uh, arguments for and against. But he actually argues that a lot of the things that we believe in are actually innate to our uh, being. So it's actually genetically already, um, your opinions are also very much genetically driven. And then he uh, tries to also analyze what, what, uh, what does define more progressive thinker and what defines a more conservative thinker. And he has a whole scale of, of seven moral uh, dimensions, but a progressive thinker is more uh, focused on care and uh, um, fairness. So care, things like saying, you know, you can judge your society on the basis of how they treat the weakest people. That's a very progressive thought, right? Uh, so uh, progressives really think about, you know, caring and, and fairness. And then conservative thinkers actually also have, a, 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 you know, they do register on that, but not as much as progressives. But conservatives have 
th- uh, moral compasses actually that are very different in in three other dimensions, and that's uh, hierarchy. Uh, loyalty and sanctity Uh, and the sanctity is a bit uh, more difficult to explain but that's when you have a symbol so if you're really wedged to the uh, the royal family or a flag if you think a flag is really important or your religion is really important that is something that's holy to you right and a progressive will think like a flag it's it's just a piece of uh, of cloth right it it doesn't mean anything and a conservative will say no a flag is a symbolic of our of our society of our brotherhood it's our nation and and so conservatives actually are more related to uh, forming communities uh, and the progressives are far better in innovating and finding fault in a system so a progressive thinker will f- very often say you know screw the system and and let's change everything and a conservative actually has far more ideas about hierarchy loyalty and how to build a system is actually something that conservatives are usually better at and what Haidt also says is that what we are actually missing in our society these days is the ability to talk between progressives and conservatives we used to be able to talk and use actually the two value sets that we have, because we need people to build stuff, build communities, but they're a bit, uh, conservatives are a bit weak on finding the faults in the system. And we need innovators that look at the system and say, no, things need to change and we need to innovate. But at least, but they also need some help actually building systems. And, and so that's also the way I see, you know, this indicator set, uh, set or, or this direction, I don't see it as a progressive paradise. I would actually want it to be a conversation starter of the middle of society to actually start to think about, well, you know, how can we get to a, an inclusive and sustainable uh, well-being society, not an economy, but <laughs> um, how can we get there? And I think there's an, a really interesting parallel also with the system of national accounts. So that's where GDP is defined. And what actually happened is that uh, people quite often say, well, that's a neoliberal agenda, right? So it's very much a progressive frame is like, it's a neoliberal agenda, um, a free market, stuff like that. Uh, Actually, what happened was that it was developed after the Second World War, and it was very much left-wing macroeconomists, Keynesian, and actually GDP did best in actually left-leaning socialist countries because um, uh, left thinkers actually work through the government. They love government policies. And GDP was very much also like left-wing economics was very much organizing the economy. And so they built this indicator system. And then, of course, the neoliberal explanation of economic growth changed that entirely in the 80s. But the interesting aspect is whether you're left-wing macroeconomist or right-wing, you both agree on the system of national gouts. You both agree on GDP. You both agree that the aim is to actually increase economic growth. But the only thing you disagree about is like how to get there. Uh, uh, Left-leaning would say, we need uh, a strong government. And a neoliberal would say, well, the smaller the government, the better, let the the market reign. And so I find that very interesting that actually the measurement system should not be dictating what the answers are or how to get to well-being, inclusion and sustainability. But it should be a, a vehicle through which we have these conversations.
Yeah, and I guess that's one of the reasons why GDP has been so successful, shall we say, because it has a home in both camps yeah. in the end, and it is something that we can agree on and use as language to yeah. talk about, whereas well-being, we're getting there, because we, as we just said, there's different interpretations. We need it to be ag- something to be agreed so that we're able to kind of bring in everyone from every point of society. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and also I wanted to say, that, uh, because at the end, uh, GDP and well-being doesn't need to be correlated. Uh, if we have an increase of GDP, can also be meaning because we have more car accidents or we ha- because we have an infrastructure that is uh, jeopardizing human life and we make business of human life uh, uh, being safe. Yeah. Um, so how we can like connect both uh, words, because I know that uh, Thomas Piketty uh, tries to connect both indicators of uh, well-being or inequality more more uh, specifically uh, with the share of the different percentage uh, of the population with the GDP. So how we can also make that transition because sometimes it's really difficult to explain people we should a- abandon GDP as a main target. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Uh, I, I, and that's where it gets um, a little complex because yeah. what is the relationship between GDP and, and well-being? And and uh, and also the relationship between GDP and inequality, or the relationship between GDP and sustainability. And I think in all three dimensions, you have a f- quite a clear pattern, especially in the Western world um, after the Second World War. So, if you look at sustainability, it's fairly obvious that we had a great acceleration, where after the Second World War, just environmental pressures just exploded. In terms of inequality, we actually had reducing inequality up to around the 1970s, 80s. That's really what Piketty showed us. And then after that, uh, inequalities uh, started to increase. Uh, But interestingly, on the well-being front as well, there has been kind of a slowdown of well-being. And so uh, I, I would argue that actually from 1820 to around the Second World War, GDP and well-being were quite correlated. And then what you're seeing now is that actually we're having loads of GDP growth, uh, but really the well-being impacts are, are, um, are diminishing or even uh, reducing. Uh, in the United States, for example, we've had for the first time uh, a lowering of life expectancy, which is, of course, uh, very much against the historical trend that we knew. So I think we also need to realize that these trends are happening. And the only way to do that is also to show these indicators of well-being, inclusion and sustainability, and then to have this debate. Is this what we want? Uh, And how will we get to a different future? What perspectives are there in that debate? Also, the next question that I wanted to ask you uh, is uh, how we put limits to the well-being or more uh, more specifically, how we treat well-being in terms of my well-being can affect others' well-being, uh, not only in my own country or in my own region, but also in the whole world. So how this sphere of well-being affects other regions? Yeah, yeah, d- great question. I, th- I think the... The, the topics are already showing where the damage might occur. So wh- by actually confronting well-being to inequality to sustainability, you're already showing where those trade-offs might be, right? So, for example, you might have uh, higher salaries and, and uh, <coughs> a lot of uh, 
tax breaks and you might mm. become really rich and that of course increases inequality so that would be uh, to the detriment sometimes of of others and of course through consumption you might actually influence future generations so but when we're measuring that just at the national level um, of course that kind of averages out and so what you are seeing also now is that we are getting far more sophisticated in actually measuring what different demographic groups in terms of their impact, for example, on sustainability. So in the Wise Horizons project, we also have the team from Thomas Piketty and Lucas, uh, Lucas Chancel. And they, for example, looked at carbon, carbon inequality. So, you know, depending on your income, you also are emitting um, a, a lot more carbon as you become richer. And so they are also looking at not individuals, but rather at demographic group or income groups in terms of their impact on others. And then you could imagine that policies are also then targeting, for example, those kind of things, because a lot of the emissions, for example, will come from, let's say, SUVs or private jets. And you could then actually implement policies, of course, in, in, in those kind of situations that deal with those type of impacts. Um, so I, I think the first thing is to actually have a system where you show what the what the trade-offs are, because it is true that well-being impacts, of course, other aspects. But I do also believe that there are ways of improving your well-being which do not affect other uh, people. And that's where the, I think the social connections become so important. When we're talking about consumption and those kind of things and, you know, inequalities in the workplace and bonuses and those kind of things, then I do think there are trade-offs. But if you look at the research, really, of, uh, of um, uh, well-being, you know, health comes out really importantly. Well, you can improve your health, of course. That's with your lifestyle and stuff. That doesn't necessarily have to impact other people. And uh, your social connections are actually mutually beneficial, right? So a lot of the literature says if you have valuable uh, connections, um, <coughs> you know, a purpose also with your relationships and, and those kind of things, then um, that does make you happy. But the interesting thing about that is that you're not consuming those social relationships. You're nurturing both of them and you're... You know, you're both benefiting from from uh, from that relationship, and and so uh, you know there are situations where there is a trade-off, but I think we should also be starting to think about, you know, the well-being aspects and focusing more on those things that actually really make us happy, rather than the things that also have these trade-offs. talk about the beyond growth conference which is a conference that we are attending and then many people from the from our course as well which is uh, well based on the movement uh, beyond gdp as well or growth uh, related to these topics and uh, our question because you also were talking with us before that you're excited that this is moving and also in the un uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in this aspect so uh, mm, our question was more related to um, how do you feel this is going to be translated uh, into policies if it's going to be soon? Uh, or do you think this is still in uh, cooking somehow and it's going to be more talking than doing? Um, or you feel like the policies uh, regarding uh, these new ways of measurement could come soon? And how could these policies look like? 
somehow. Yeah, I, I'm really excited for this conference as well. I do think there is a mind shift towards implementation. I, I think the science has been out there for 50 years or so, but we haven't really made that much breakthroughs in terms of like getting it into policy. And, you know, there's a couple of countries like New Zealand that have really gone really far. Uh, but but I see this really also as a, a process, an experimental phase, where this conference is also an important step. Uh, but it, it just takes a lot of hard work and also perseverance um, to, to think of how this would be implemented in policies, not just indicators, but also models. Um, because I think the Beyond GDP community so far has been looking backwards, you know, analyzing, well, how is inequality done in the past? How is well-being done in the past? Sustainability. But what uh, policymakers and, and, you know, governments want to know is what do we do in the future? Don't tell me just about the past. When I go to an economist, he doesn't just tell me what GDP was last year. He'll have a piece of advice about how to grow the economy next year. And you're coming to me uh, just with an analysis of the past. Um, so I, I think we also need to do a better job of actually mimicking what you know economists uh, did. And they became kind of the advisors of society after the Second World War by making sure that they were also you know, doing what the policymakers needed. They really talked to them. They integrated into that system. But that also took... I, I would say one or two decades. It wasn't as if the GDP was invented and the next week, you know, all governments suddenly shifted. That was also incrementally that, you know, it started to emerge in budgeting processes and then it, it grew into institutions, statistical offices started to professionalize. We got economic institutes. So that also generically grew. So I think we need the perseverance and the clarity to, to just realize that this will take a while, but we shouldn't just sit as scientists, just sit on the sidelines and say, well, you know, GDP is rubbish, or, you know, those are kind of arguments are over. We know that, uh, but now we need to think about, well, how can we help policymakers in their processes that they already have, um, and how can we help them rather than just being critical, but really doing the work uh, of, of integrating it into policy. I assume also like the perspective of, of, the, of the, c the civil society also plays a role regarding like if you come to me tomorrow saying uh, uh, as a political party, I've increased uh, five points the well-being of the country and the other guy says like I've increased like five points of the economy like, maybe most of the people will go for the guy of the economy for the vote so I think also requires a change of of, of people understanding uh, of what they should focus on or what's more relevant uh, somehow yeah I must say in the longer term I do see that if we can change the narrative uh, we might have quite a good chance of, of convincing more people that actually the increase in well-being is actually more desirable than the, than, uh, the economy. Um, you know, one of the things that in the degrowth literature is quite a popular topic is the four-day work week. Um, and there I think it's really clear that if you work less, um, then your income will also be lower and, um, you know, hopefully your CO2 emissions, although it's not a given. But so there you see a very definite trade-off between well-being, more leisure time, 
uh, and less income. And I don't know how, I think your generation uh, will be even more towards that. Um, but also a lot of my friends are already working four days a week, far more uh, paternity and maternity leave, of course, than we were used to. Uh, so I think the balance, for example, between leisure time and work time it is shifting. And there, for example, I, I think it's fairly clear to people, well, you know, what the preferable route is. Um, I actually have some data back going back uh, one and a half centuries. And, and, you know, the average person in Dutch industry was working around 63 hours a week. Uh, and just imagine no, probably no public holidays, uh, you know, a very short lifespan, very, a lot less education, a lot less pension years. So just think about the amount of time that you were working out of your whole lifespan in 1850. And what we have now, and so to a certain degree, the caricature that we've only been chasing growth from a long-term perspective is also a bit of a caricature. Yeah. We have actually traded a little bit, a lot of uh, leisure time for less I income because if we would all be working 66 hours a week, uh, the economy could actually be f far bigger than it is now. So we didn't. Uh, sometimes it's even a bit of a character to say that the whole society is run on, on the economy. Um, it does change your, change your perspective a bit when you look at these longer term trends. So do you have any sort of take-home messages for the audience um, from this conversation? Because we've talked about a lot. So just anything you would say represents a good uh, thought to leave the audience on. Yeah, I think I would love uh, the audience or I guess it's the students to think about. We're all thinking about better futures um, from, from your own perspective. And I think what I've learned about this, you know, this Jonathan Haidt work and, and those kind of things is that sometimes we're... Uh, we work in a very polarized sense. So, you know, it's either the truth of the extreme left or the truth of the extreme right. And I would love to see whether we can have better conversations in the middle. Uh, you can be left of center or right of center, but to at least acknowledge that there, the other side also has a perspective that is valuable in this conversation is, I think, so important in our society. And it's something that really motivates me to sometimes uh, defend uh, things that are very conservative and sometimes I'll defend things that are very progressive when I'm confronted with a more conservative audience because I actually believe sometimes we, we lose a little bit of wisdom by not looking at what uh, the other perspectives are in society and we'll only get there um, if, if we do actually work together in the middle and so hopefully um, uh, that is something that uh, resonates with people as well. Um, and and uh, um, yeah, that would be my message. Uh, yeah, and it's also okay to not know the answer oh, or to change your mind. Oh, to change it's your mind. To, yeah. to go back, because sometimes I think the way that society is being adapting, it's kind of yeah. weak to change your mind. Yeah. Or to say, actually, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's seen as weak, but actually yeah. it's not at all. Yeah. One of the rhetorical questions that uh, I heard uh, it, uh, philosophers sometimes use is, you know, what would be needed to change your mind? And that helps you think because you're, you know, everybody has a mindset uh, and, and what would be needed to change your mind? And, and 
uh, one of the most interesting experiences I had was writing the book. I, I went into writing the book that I knew exactly what I was going to write. And uh, three years later, I just had a totally different narrative. It was a totally different story to what I started with. And that was one of the most valuable periods of my life in terms of my work. Uh, it's probably... So, so actually growing trying to challenge your own uh, uh, narratives and questions and ideas. And even, as you said, just saying, I don't know, I have no idea, is actually a va very valuable thing. Uh, but I think in our uh, social media-fed society, um, Twitter society, it's very hard to withdraw your opinion. And I once heard a joke that somebody said, the only thing that has never been tweeted is... You, I think you have a point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That never happens. <laughs> wow. What a conversation. It was insane. Yeah, we... Yeah. We covered a lot of things. We've been everywhere. We've been in politics. We've been in environmental stuff. So we thought just to kind of distill some of the key takeaways that we've had, uh, we would share them with you now to help summarize a bit of the content for you. So Nacho, what would you say is the key takeaway for you from this episode? I mean, I would say that uh, GDP uh, this, uh, as an indicator, it was super important and has bring a lot of uh, nice results on papers, but also is kind of broken while it was increasing uh, in the last century, uh, also well-being and <coughs> life expect expectancy uh, was also growing. Suddenly, we have the example of the United States, a GDP that still grows, but more inequalities, less well-being, and less life for everyone. So we need to transit. And for that, we have to understand the context, the narrative, and the actors that take place. Oof, really good summary, Nacho. I don't think we're going to be able to top that. Yeah, yeah. Would you like I to mean, I, I for <laughs> me, I mean, all that he said was was amazing. But also the the takeaway that I get also as a motivation thing is that right now they're moving also from academia to more like uh, policy making. And uh, uh, Rutger was really excited about the the possibilities of this conference uh, in Brussels that is coming soon. Uh, and yeah, how how this thought that has been uh, there for already some time can just really be implemented in, in our lives, in, in our policies. So that for me is quite inspiring as well. Yeah, yeah. and makes quite a change because sometimes we do leave these uh, episodes feeling a bit pessimistic. So it's nice to feel like there's hope. Yep. Yeah, still there's some. I mean, like, I mean, we start walking, but suddenly we start running and then, oh, woo, who knows? Well be growth, well being for growth all. again, you yeah. see, like. Well-being for everyone. <laughs> the new growth. But um, I guess it's I should so say my key takeaway as well. So I think one of the key things I've learned from this is maybe more about one of the things that's super important in making these well-being indicators as successful as GDP is being aware of the different interpretations and definitions that people have when they talk about well-being and trying to make our kind of objective of well-being and our definition be able to fit in all these different political camps for all these different types of people in the same way that GDP has managed to fit in, you know, right-wing circles and left-wing circles. We need to be mindful that when we're trying to work towards well-being, we need to work towards a concept which is shared between all of us. Well, great. Yeah, I think. Very good one. Wow. So hopefully that 
uh, summarize some of the content for you, but feel free to re-listen. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. And we a couple will, of times. Uh, and, and we will put in the description like all the references and things that he has said. Yes. Uh, I, we think that it's really important to... Uh, he mentioned some amazing books, so yeah. we're going to make sure they're all written in the description for you. Also read his book, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Read. Yeah. Read. We have done it. Read, please. Please read. <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you all so much for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Yeah, and also we have a small sponsorship uh, right now for the end of this episode, so hope you like it. Yeah. Enjoy. Bye. Yeah, I think the Beyond Growth uh, conference. What's really exciting is also, you know, that we have 35 students going to the to the conference. So it also made us think a little bit about, you know, how much interest there is. So I'll actually be teaching a course um, after the summer, a capital selector course on post growth beyond GDP. Um, and so I'm also really looking forward to making contact with the students uh, during that course after the summer. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah.